Welcome to the Table of Perspective, where we take a deeper look into how the internal narrative of an individual determines the response to life itself and all it entails. I'm your host, Bula, and today we will be looking into one of the most exciting things I have gotten my hands on in a long time, and it is a book by C.S. Lewis. So do enjoy the first song, and then we will get straight into it. I'm feeling all but it's about to be no man. I've reviewed some of these other books like Screwtape Letters and I've listened to, um, well, repeatedly listened to an audiobook of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And we know that he does the phenomenal series of Narnia, which from all to young, it's something you really get into. It draws you in, it takes you on an adventure and you really see the not only the biblical narrative behind it, but there are so many principles that are deeply knitted into the story. 
And just the way that he writes is such a joy to read. So this specific book is C.S. Lewis's autobiography, and it is called Surprised by Joy. So just on the back of the book, it states that how did C.S. Lewis become a Christian? Actually, on the front, it has some writing stating that C.S. Lewis's autobiography, which is an accidental journey from atheism to Christianity. And it goes on to say that C.S. Lewis's autobiography of his early life describes his spiritual crisis, which was to determine the shape of his entire existence. For many years as an atheist, in Surprised by Joy, he vividly describes the spiritual quest that eventually convinced him of the truth and reality of the Christian faith. And the Sunday Times actually say here that he is admirably equipped to write spiritual autobiography for the plain man. For his outstanding gift is clarity. You can take it at two levels, a straight autobiography or a kind of spiritual thriller, a detective's probing of clue and motive that led up to his return to the Christianity he had lost in his childhood. So I have not yet finished this book, but let me tell you, it's not often, unfortunately, it's more specifically for me as a certain type of reader, to get drawn into a book by the first pages. Usually I'm kind of chewing through it with difficulty in the beginning, trying to get to, I guess, the meat of the book and then enjoying it at the end. But this one, I haven't been able to put down just yet. So in the front, it states that Clive Staples Lewis, born in 1898 and died in 1963, was one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century and arguably the most influential writer of his day. He was a fellow and tutor in English literature at Oxford University until 1954, when he was unanimously elected the chair of Medieval and Renaissance English, or Renaissance English, at Cambridge University, a position he held until his retirement. He wrote more than 30 books, allowing him to reach a vast audience, and his works continue to attract thousands of new readers every year. His most distinguished and popular accomplishments include The Chronicles of Narnia, The Cosmic Trilogy, the Four Loves and the Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity. So just a quick note on the way that this book is written. There is quite a few times that if you are a person who gets easily offended, might not enjoy this book as much. He does state straight up that if you don't enjoy a certain type of writing, you need to put the book down and walk away. It's not of any benefit to you, which is kind of funny because... The amount of years that I wanted to get this book, and it wasn't because I couldn't get it. I've had it in my hands multiple times, ready to purchase it. But I just really wanted to be able to read it at a time where I would thoroughly enjoy it and eat through it. And, you know, I kind of put a lot of pressure on, you know, the extent of what this book is. It is his autobiography. It's the core of everything he's done and the reason why he's done it. And so I didn't want to get it at a time where I would just lightly read through it and then, you know, put it away and never remember about anything about it again. I wanted to get it at, I guess, a crisis time in my own life so that I could see the reflection of how he endured and overcome that, if it makes sense. So I eventually did get it. And here in the preface, it states that this book is written partly in answer to requests that I would tell how I am passed or how I passed from atheism to Christianity and partly to correct the one or two false notions that seem to have got about. How far the story matters to anyone but myself depends on the degree to which others have experienced what I call, quote unquote, joy. If it is at all common, a more detailed treatment of it than I believe has been attempted before and maybe of some use. I've been emboldened to write of it because I noticed that a man seldom mentions what he had supposed 
to be his most idiosyncratic sensations without receiving from at least one or often more of those present the reply, what have you felt that too? I always thought I was the only one. The book aims at telling the story of my conversion and is not a general autobiography, still less quote-unquote confessions like those of St. Augustine or Rousseau. This means that in practice, that it gets less like a general autobiography as it goes on. In the earlier chapters, the net has to be spread pretty wide in order that, when explicitly spiritual crisis arrives, the reader may understand what sort of person my childhood and adolescence had made me. When the build-up is complete, I confine myself strictly to business and omit everything, however important by ordinary biographical standards, which seems, at that stage, irrelevant. I do not think there is much loss. I never read an autobiography in which the parts devoted to the earlier years were not far the most interesting. The story is, I fear, suffocatingly subjective. The kind of thing I have never written before and shall probably never write again. I have tried so to write the first chapter that those who can't bear with such a story will see that at once what they are in for and close the book with the least waste of time. So yes, by the time I had eventually gotten this book and he told me basically to not read it if I didn't enjoy what or understand the first part, I had to chuckle at that because there was no ways I was going to put it down. So in the first years, it speaks of a writer by the name of Milton. Oftentimes in his writing, he will refer to poems or certain writers' proses that he has read before as references. And a very interesting thing about the way that he's written, it kind of reminds me of what Jordan Peterson often says. And he says people need to be taught how to write their thoughts. And it was always an interesting concept because everyone learns how to talk about everything they're thinking. But being able to properly write those things down helps you to, I guess, narrate your life in a sense, or it helps you to develop a clearer idea about what you're actually perceiving to be reality. So on the first page, it says that happy, comma, but not so f uh, happy, ill secured. He was born in the winter of 1898 at Belfast, the son of a solicitor and a clergyman's daughter. My parents had only two children, both sons, and I was the younger by about three years. Two very different strains had gone to our making. My father belonged to the first generation of his family that reached professional station. His grandfather had been a Welsh farmer. His father, a self-made man, had begun life as a workman, immigrated to Ireland, and ended up as a partner in the firm of Macquillane and Lewis, boilermakers, engineers, and iron ship builders. My mother was a Hamilton, with many generations of clergymen, lawyers, sailors, and the like behind her. On her mother's side, though, through the Warrens, the blood went back to the Norman knight whose bones lie at Battle Abbey. The two families from which I spring were as different in temperament as in origin. My father's people were true Welshmen, sentimental, passionate, rhetorical, easily moved both to anger and tenderness, men who laughed and cried a great deal, and who were not so much of the talent for happiness. The Hamiltons were a cooler race, their minds were critical and ironic, and they had the talent for happiness in a high degree. Went straight for it as the experienced travellers go for the best seat in a train. From my earliest years, I was aware of the vivid contrast between my mother's cheerful and tranquil affection and the ups and downs of my father's emotional life. And this bred in me, long before I was old enough to give it a name, a certain distrust or dislike of emotion as something uncomfortable and embarrassing and even dangerous. 
in the book, he actually does mention quite a few times, he refers back to the specific page where he had stated that he developed a dislike of emotion because there is oftentimes experiences that he would have and his reaction to it was always out of this distrust or dislike of emotions. So he goes on to say that both my parents, by the standards of that time and place, were bookish or clever people. My mother had been a promising mathematician in her youth and a BA of Queen's College, Belfast, and before her death was able to start me in both French and Latin. She was a voracious reader of good novels, and I think the Merediths and Tolstoys which I've inherited were bought for her. My father's tastes were quite different. He was fond of oratory, and he himself spoken of political platforms in England as a young man. If he had had independent means, he would certainly have aimed at a political career. In this, unless his sense of honour, which was fine to the point of being quixotic and made him unmanageable, he might have well succeeded, for he had many of the gifts once needed by a parliamentarian. A fine presence, a resonant voice, quick of the mind, eloquence and memory. Trollope's pr uh, political novels were very dear to him. In following the career of Phineas Finn, he was, and as I now suppose, vicariously gratifying his own de desires. He was fond of poetry, provided it had elements of the rhetoric or pathos, or both, I think. I think Othello was his favourite Shakespearean play. He greatly enjoyed nearly all humorous authors, from Dickens to W. W. Jacobs, and he himself, almost without rival, the best raconteur I have ever heard, the best, that is, of his own type, the type that acts all the characters in turn with a free use of grimace, gesture, and pantomime. He was never happier than when closeted for an hour or so with one or two of my uncles exchanging wheezes as anecdotes were oddly called in our family. What neither he or my mother had the least taste for was that kind of literature to which my legions was given for at the moment, so I could choose books for myself. Neither had ever listened for the horns of Alfland. There was no copy of Keats or Shelley in the house, and the copy of Coleridge was never to my knowledge opened. If I am a romantic, my parents bear no responsibility for it. Just a note on that, there's another book that I read about C.S. Lewis called The Romantic Rationalist, and that also breaks down his perception on faith and actually specific points of his Christian faith that he had staunch views on. So, for example, the comparison that he made of Arminianism versus Calvinism, so being saved by works versus being saved purely by grace. There's also a, a very interesting dialogue that happens in that book between the authors that had done a, a cover on his work. So that's also something really enjoyable to go into if you are interested in C.S. Lewis. But he continues on to say that Tennyson, indeed, his father liked, but it was never the Tennyson in Memoriam or Locksley Hall. I never heard from him of the Lotus Eaters or the Mort de Arthur. I'm going to go into the second song now and then I'll just close off quickly with some notes about the rest of the book as there's quite a lot of narrative of his first years. So please enjoy. I know it's difficult, but you know the odds really are in our favor, man. Uh. Uh. Pay attention. Uh. 
things just ain't the same for gangsters. The whole world's changed, everybody's a stranger. These young dudes running around saying they bangers. Quick the low bangers, the click and bang ya. And I done seen too many teens chasing a dream. End up bloodstream, contaminated and fiending. And now they leaning on words that he said or she said, we said, look at him, he dead. See, we ain't never know Martin Luther the King. Most of us probably couldn't tell you much about his dream. We like Malcolm X, cause Spike made the movie. And we saw him strapped up with the AKs and Uzis. So excuse me, you tryna connect ya. A whole generation is raised by gangsters who probably never knew Pops. We had Tupac and old Boombox chilling in our tube socks. And plus Dre taught us how to roll a 64. And Snoop Dogg taught us how to roll a sticky drove. So if they wanna reach us with Jesus, they gotta do better than some screaming preachers, yeah. Cause homies, we don't believe ya. We seen grandmas ride by these cold knees with heaters, huh? So we skeptical. It's easier to believe that there's a heaven for a thug that mess with you. It's hard to rise. Aspire to be pole models. You are not what the media impose on you. God made you any rose for you, so you rise. off a little bit more about the book in specific he goes into some of the information about his father and his relationship with his brother but the most startling part is when his mother dies actually and how there's this coldness that comes between all of his family members and how he starts depending on his brother as his sole basically friendship and relationship and referral to human interaction he goes on to going into a boarding school the same one that his brother had been at previously and he also speaks about a very interesting perception or rather frame of mind that he had developed so in the beginning he speaks about how he had desired to read of elves and kingdoms and all of these i guess fantastical ideas that he had whereby there was nothing of that in his household and he and his brother actually often thought about you know, drawing certain pictures and his brother always had a certain idea of drawing things and he had a desire to draw animals in human form dressed up in suits and ties, which was very odd, especially from the background that he came from. But there's a quote that he has, if I were to just break it down quite simply, he says that 
if we have these desires that cannot be fulfilled or satisfied in the place that we are, we are definitely from another place. And it actually refers back to how we as children of God think of the kingdom of heaven as something that God has actually placed a desire in our own hearts for. And we living on this earth cannot be satisfied in this earth for the kingdom desires, if that makes sense. And the whole narrative behind the way that he writes his books and the very core of it is very odd to me because I always perceived fantasy and non-fiction in such a, a poor light because it wasn't real, it wasn't Christian, it wasn't godly, if that made sense. And I just really love being able to read how God really worked through his life in creating that image of this other world, which in actual fact is very true to God's character, creating things that are amazing and wonderful and fantastical, if it makes sense. So it's just such a joy to read. I absolutely enjoy it. If you do anything concerning C.S. Lewis, I highly advise reading any of his books. I doubt that there's one that you'd pick up that you'd be bored with. And I will continue reading through this and perhaps do more review on some of the content that I find. But that's all for me. I hope that you enjoy it and somehow it was helpful. And have a great day further. Cheers. Never let me go, no If I know you 
are select, then my sound don't play. All who run possess such faith. And even when we can't find a way, just pray. I tell you the way, and it don't make mistake. Cause you got the style and the fitness plus grace. I just love and happiness every day. There's just one thing I can't deny. Your loving is a miracle. Updated, stay entertained with Active FM on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, LinkedIn, Spotify, Anchor, and everywhere else. Engage with us, like, post, comment, share them out, retweet, retweet, and repost. Spread the word. Active FM. Radio has never been better.